wanted to uh, to pause from our uh, normal kind of study working through the Gospel of John. We'll, we'll resume John uh, next week, but but I want to you know talk about something this morning that's kind of been on my heart the last month or so. But, uh, in in mid December, there was a, a well known uh, college football coach, Mike Leach, uh, who died at the age of 61. Uh, and uh, as people were reflecting upon his life and his legacy uh, as a, a coach, I came across. Uh, an interesting article on on ESPN uh, talking about it when when he was a much younger coach and he was at uh, the University of Oklahoma. He was the offensive coordinator there and it was a, a big rivalry between the, the University of Oklahoma and the University of Texas. They call their annual game the Red River Shootout. And uh, uh, leading up to the, the big game against uh, Texas, uh, Coach Leach uh, and uh, another assistant coach, uh, they... They decided that they were going to create a fake play call sheet. That's what you know, the offensive coordinators, if you ever watch a football game, the guy over there on the sideline, they have that really big laminated sheet uh, covering their mouth so no one can read their lips. and It's all top secret. But they made a, a fake one of those, and uh, they had one of the, the assistants accidentally uh, drop that uh, on the, the field during the warm-ups uh, in the pregame. And uh, somebody from the University of uh, Texas picked that up uh, and, and brought it over to the attention of the defensive coordinator uh, on, uh, for Texas. And, and the defensive coordinator was trying to figure out what to, what to do with this. And, but uh, he, ultimately, the defensive coordinator uh, decided that he was going to act uh, according to this game plan that he found. Uh, and so he set his defense up uh, against those particular plays. Uh, and the, the Texas defense just got obliterated for the first few plays until the, the defensive coordinator figured out this was a this was a fake and this was a sham uh and uh, and made some adjustments and and texas ended up winning the game uh but uh for those first few uh uh plays and first few possessions uh, oklahoma had a lot of uh, a lot of success because of that fake game plan so and uh you and i are uh are currently watching uh, and experiencing a, another another game plan uh that is unfolding. Back in uh, July of 2021, uh, the, the U.S. House of Representatives passed uh, and voted on a passed what became known as the, the Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, and at the end of November, the, the Senate voted and passed uh, that same act. And then in December 13th, uh, President Biden uh, signed it uh, into law. Uh, and the, the, the Respect for, for Marriage Act, uh, very uh, misnamed. Uh, but uh, that bill repeals uh, what was known as the Defense of Marriage Act. And some of you may be wondering, well, what is the Defense of Marriage Act? Well, that was a, a bill that was signed into law in 1996. And, and so this is what was repealed. This is the Defense of Marriage Act. This is the, the wording from 1996. It's, uh, that act defined marriage as meaning only a legal union between one man and one woman as husband and wife. And the word spouse refers only to a person of the opposite sex who is a husband or a wife. And the Defense of Marriage Act also stated that, in essence, if certain states began to issue uh, same-sex marriage licenses, uh, that other states would not necessarily be forced to recognize those uh, marriages. Uh, and uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, what it has done is it has repealed the Defense of Marriage Act uh, and this is now what the, the new act uh, says. 
for the purpose of any federal law, rule, or regulation in which marital status is a factor, an individual shall be considered married if that individual's marriage is between two individuals and is valid in the state where the marriage was entered into. So the husband and wife are uh, removed, and there's no uh, definition of uh, who a spouse is. But uh, there's even more. If you listen to section uh, 1738C, subsection A, and all of this is available on uh, congress.gov. These are the, the wording of the, the new laws. It's in general, no person acting under uh, color of state law may deny, number one, full faith and credit to any public act record or judicial proceeding of any other state pertaining to a marriage between two individuals on the basis of sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin of those individuals. Or two, a right or claim arising from such a marriage on the basis that such marriage would be not be recognized under the law of that state on the basis of the sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin of those individuals. And then subsection B says enforcement by the attorney general. The Attorney General may bring a civil action in the appropriate United States District Court against any person who violates subsection A for declaratory or injunctive relief. And then subsection C says private right of action. Any person who is harmed by a violation of subsection A may bring a civil action in the appropriate United States District Court against the person who violated such subsection for declaratory and injunctive relief. And that's a lot of uh, legal language there. Uh, But what this uh, does in in redefining what marriage is, the Alliance Defending Freedom, a legal organization, explains that this law threatens, number one, it threatens the the tax-exempt status of nonprofit organizations uh, that uphold monogamous male-female marriages. And ultimately, I'm not not worried about that. We're not necessarily promised uh, a tax-exempt status. Uh, but this is, this is the, the, the bigger uh, concern. Uh, secondly, uh, this uh, law enables predatory litigation by activists against faith-based social service organizations that could mire Americans in courts for years to vindicate their rights under the First Amendment, in which since uh, the process of all of those legal issues is the punishment. Uh, we've seen this with uh, cake bakers and, and florists already. Uh, they're mired for years and years in legal battles because they, they won't uh, submit to uh, what another person is demanding of them. Uh, and I say that this is a, a part of a larger game plan, and some of you may be, may be skeptical of that. I, I mentioned the, that article about uh, Mike Leach earlier, and I found that one uh, to be a funny article, a funny article about a, a game plan, but there's a not-so-funny article that also came to mind about another game plan. Uh, and this, this article is from 1987. It was published in the November edition of Guide magazine back in 1987, and the article was entitled, uh, The Overhauling of Straight America. Uh, and it was written by Marshall Kirk uh, and Erastus Pill. And I'm going to read uh, the two opening paragraphs of the article. And if, if you want to read the full thing, I can, I can send you a link. It says, the, the first order of business, uh, in terms of the, the overhauling of straight America, is desensitization of the American public concerning gays and gay rights. 
to desensitize the public is to help it view homosexuality with indifference instead of with keen emotion. Ideally, we, we would have straights uh, register differences in sexual preference the way they register differences, different tastes for ice cream or sports games. She likes strawberry. I like vanilla. He follows baseball and I follow football. No big deal. At least in the beginning, uh, we are seeking public desensitization and nothing more. We do not need and cannot expect a full appreciation or understanding of homosexuality from the average American. You can forget about trying to persuade the masses that homosexuality is a good thing. But if only you can get them to think that it is just another thing with a shrug of their shoulders, then your battle for legal and social rights is virtually won. And to get to shoulder shrug stage, gays as a class must cease to appear mysterious, alien, loathsome, and contrary. A large-scale media campaign will be required in order to change the image of gays in America. And any campaign to accomplish this turnaround should do six things. Here's uh, brief statements on what those six things are. The, the article is, uh, is very sobering in how it lays all this out. But here, here are those six things. Number one, talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. So, in essence, desensitize us. Think about when was the last time you saw a TV show that didn't have uh, a homosexual character in it? Just think about that. Number two, portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. Number three, give protectors a just cause. And in this section, they they outline that rather than being pro uh, and, and giving direct support for homosexual practices, that the, the tactic that they should use is that of anti-discrimination. So making, uh, giving this a, a platform and making this about defending rather than uh, attacking. Number four, make gays look good. So in essence, not just painting them as normal, but painting them as the pillars of society. Number five, make the victimizers look bad. Here's a larger quote uh, for that. It says, At a later stage of the media campaign for gay rights, long after other gay ads have become commonplace, it will be time to get tough with remaining opponents. To be blunt, they must be vilified. This will be all the more necessary because by that time the entrenched enemy will have quadrupled its output of vitriol and disinformation. Our goal here is twofold. First, we seek to replace the mainstream's self-righteous pride about its, hom- about its homophobia with shame and guilt. Second, we intend to make the anti-gays look so nasty that average Americans will want to dissociate themselves from such types. And then the sixth thing that they say needs to be done if they're going to be successful is that they need to solicit funds. Uh, and then uh, they talk about how much money they need to raise. And then what's really sobering in that last section is they, they describe uh, really the, the, the ways that commercials can be propagandized and what type of commercials they should shoot to present this message to America. Sobering, sobering, sobering article. Uh, I, I came across it recently. Uh, that article eventually developed into a book called After the Ball, which is you know 400 pages, and I've referenced that book in the past. But 
This is a much shorter read, and it's very sobering. And reading that, I realize you and I are living in stage five of that plan made 35 years ago. A game plan that was intended to slowly change Americans' minds just as we're swimming in the cultural waters. That it would be so subtle that there would be a huge about-face over time. And that is exactly what has happened. I wish that that had been a fake call sheet. I wish that was a fake game plan. But, but it is real, and it has been so overwhelmingly successful. It has changed our culture. So what are we as Christians to do? Right? Because we're starting to feel that. Right? We're starting to feel that they must be vilified, the author said. To put it bluntly, but those who still say that marriage is between one man and one woman, they must be vilified. And we, they have to present us in such a light that anybody who's kind of on the fence uh, doesn't even want to associate with us. Right? I think we're, we're starting to, to feel that. We find ourselves in a situation not unlike what we read about in, in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his three friends who were, they were taken from Judah into Babylon uh, as teenagers. Uh, they were taken to Babylon. They were uh, placed inside a new culture and they were told to conform. They got new names uh, and they were brought in for re-education. In Daniel 1, they were, they were faithful to God even in the little things. Right? Daniel said, hey, let's go to, we wish to have this diet, not this diet that you're placing upon us. They're faithful in the little things. And then they're also faithful in the bigger things. Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said we're not going to be coerced. We're not going to be pushed and bullied into idolatry. We're not going to bow down to the statue of the king. We're going to worship God. And we're going to trust him to deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, they say, we still won't bow. We still won't worship anyone other than God. And, you know, that was, Libby and I were, were talking on our, our drive home after being out of town, just on what, uh, what stood out to us in the book of Daniel. We both landed right there uh, of, of that stance. And, and, and teenagers here, think about this. Are you ready to take that kind of a stance? If you were uprooted from everybody you know, taken to a foreign land with a different country, a different country, different culture, and they said, you must do as we do. Are you committed to following Christ? Sobering to think about, teens. But Daniel and his three friends were willing to do that. And parents, sobering to think about, have you discipled your kids to be ready for that? And parents, are you modeling courage? Courage is more caught than taught. Sobering to think about. Daniel 6, we see that as an older man, Daniel was still willing to to risk death by lions just so he could continue in his daily prayer. He wanted to continue to pray to the God who had been with him his entire life. Are you willing to stand in that way? I, I know some of us want to stand in that way, and I know others are not sure if we can 
Now, and if, if we're brutally honest, we, don't, we won't really know if we are willing to stand until it comes, right? Remember Peter? I will die for you tonight. Jesus says, well, wait a second. Are we willing to stand? My hope this morning is, is to give you that courage to stand and to, to help you understand what marriage truly is and why it is so important and why it's being attacked. Because this, this bill, what, what has become law, the Respect for Marriage Act, it, it impacts individual Christians far more than it will impact the, the, the church. Now, there's another act coming down the pipeline that may impact the church. Uh, but but this, th- this hits all of you in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces. And I want to uh, give you courage to stand. And I want to equip you to be able to have conversations with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Right? And, and I don't want you to feel like you cannot speak, that you must be silent. I want to look at three game plans concerning marriage this morning. The, the first is... God's game plan for marriage, and I know I've given you some extensive notes, so act surprised when I get to the later points. Uh, I've given you the, the spoiler alert, but the first game plan is God's game plan for marriage. Uh, and uh, I love there's an uh, alliterated outline that is not my own. I'm not sure uh, where I, I heard it, but uh, it's kind of outlining what marriage is. God's game plan for marriage. Number one, it is rooted in creation. If you turn, turn your Bibles to Genesis 1. You look at verses 26 to 28. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if you look over uh, at Genesis 2, which zooms in on that sixth day, verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we see in the creation order, uh, and there is an intrinsic and an inherent wisdom that God instilled into what he created. At the end of each day, what did he say? What was his evaluation? It is good. Uh, and marriage uh, is, is good. Uh, it is uh, what God has ordained. It is th- the means by which uh, God is going to, to bless humanity. It's the means by which humanity is going to be able to subdue and exercise dominion over the earth. Uh, and uh, it is rooted at the very beginning. And so when we seek to, to overthrow the wisdom of God in the created order, we do so to our own harm. Understand, marriage is rooted in creation. Secondly, it is... It is reiterated throughout Scripture. And, and the purposes and the parameters of, of marriage uh, are, are slowly unfolded and reaffirmed throughout the Old and, and New Testaments. 
Uh, and uh, there's a there's a lot here. And again, I know you have those uh, have those notes in front of you. But uh, number one, I begin with something from the New Testament, but that marriage is to be honored uh, by all. Uh, Hebrews 13, 4, uh, that it, the marriage bed is to be undefiled and sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge. So marriage is to be honored. Uh, marriage is also is intended to be between one man and one woman. This was inherently clear in in the creation order, what we saw in Genesis 2. Uh, and uh, what uh, God ordained is uh, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Uh, and uh, this is this is the intentionality of all that God has created in his wisdom. Uh, and this is uh, what he has ordained uh, and what he has chosen to bless. Uh, and uh, I often get... Uh, get the question i had it in uh, in growth group when we read through genesis and and you students always ask the best questions if you talk about uh marriage they say well what about uh abraham because abraham had multiple wives what about jacob who had multiple wives what about david who had multiple wives uh, what about polygamy in the old testament uh and again that that is that is descriptive it is not prescriptive uh, it is explaining what happened not go and do likewise and if you read carefully Whenever there is a polygamy, whenever there is a man with multiple wives, what do you see? You see heartache, sorrow, trouble. You see conflict uh, within uh, the families. Uh, it, it is so difficult. So uh, marriage is intended to be between one man and one woman. We also see that marriage uh, was given for procreation and the raising of children. God's first command uh, and back in Genesis 1, 28, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, uh, fill the earth. Uh, later on, uh, we see husbands are intended to lovingly lead their wife and instruct their children uh, without exasperating them. You know, we see that, that men uh, are intended to lead within marriage and the family. Uh, we see that wives are intended uh, to uh, submit to their own husbands and, and to respect them and to work diligently pouring into the children and establishing the home. We see that sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage uh, is prohibited. This is clear in the, in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. We see it in Leviticus 18, which is a whole chapter that clearly identifies what relationships are a violation of God's will. Uh, we see that sexual activity within the covenant of marriage is to be enjoyed. So outside of marriage is prohibited. Inside of marriage, it's to be enjoyed. It's to be a, a, a blessing. We see this in the Song of Solomon. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7. And we see, number 8 there, that while divorce is never desired by God, it is at times permissible when the marriage covenant has been abandoned, 1 Corinthians 7, or it has been violated with unrepentant adultery. But divorce always breaks God's heart. Malachi 2, 14-16, speaking to the Israelites, he says, But... But you say, for what reason? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. And though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so, even one who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly seed? Be careful then to keep your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says Yahweh of hosts. Be careful then to keep your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So 
divorce and then then number nine and what's amazing is there are there are some who say they're christians and would argue against this point but in scripture same-sex relationships are always condemned and never commended always condemned and never commended this is clear in Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a man, a male as you lie with a female. It is an abomination. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, <clears throat> but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So marriage is rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout the scriptures. It is repeated by Jesus. If you turn over with me to Matthew chapter 19. It's amazing uh, how many of the details that we talked about that, are, that the scriptures give us about what marriage is intended to be, and how many of them are, are reaffirmed here by Jesus in this brief passage. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3. Says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's amazing. Where does Jesus go for his understanding of marriage? goes back to that created order, and he builds from there. He has has a a question about marriage, and he goes back to the beginning. Verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. But Jesus reiterates and repeats what the foundation laid in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, in creation. And then the fourth R that you, you see there, that marriage is representative of Christ and the church. The Apostle Paul reaches back into the creation order in Ephesians 5. If you, if you turn over there, passages you are probably familiar with. But so frequently as, as the apostles teach on marriage, they go back to the creation order. And in Ephesians 5, after giving instructions to uh, husbands and to, to wives, the Apostle Paul says marriage is a shadow of something greater. It's a shadow and the substance is actually Christ and his church. Ephesians 5 verses 31 and 32. Again, quoting Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. 
and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Again, it's no wonder why marriage is, is attacked. Uh, marriage is, is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. That is, that's God's game plan for marriage. And he has ordained it and given it to humanity so that we might flourish and multiply upon the earth. And the union between one man and one woman for a lifetime has been the building block of every single human society throughout human history. And yet we are now striving to, to overthrow the wisdom of God in the institution of marriage. Back in, in 2013, during uh, oral arguments at the Supreme Court for a case connected with California's Proposition 8, uh, which those of you who were in California back then, uh, Proposition 8 uh, was on the ballot, I think actually in 2008. And in California, uh, there was a proposition that sought to define marriage as between one man and one woman. And the amazing thing is, and back in 2008, it passed. The majority of Californians 15 years ago said marriage is to be between one man and one woman. That's not a long time. Think about that. And the courts in California said, oh, no, the voters can't do that. The voters can't actually go through the legal process that they're supposed to go through and add that to the California Constitution. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And so during discussions and oral arguments at the Supreme Court, Justice Samuel Alito said this. He says, you want us to assess the effects of same-sex marriage, the potential effects on uh, of same-sex marriage, uh, the potential. So he's repeating himself. uh, The effects of Proposition 8. He says, but what is your response to the argument which has already been mentioned about the need to be cautious in light of the newness of the concept of same-sex marriage? He says, the one thing that the parties in this case seem to agree on is that marriage is very important. It's thought to be a fundamental building block of society, and its preservation is essential for the preservation of society. Traditional marriage has been around for thousands of years. Same-sex marriage is very new. I think it was first adopted in the Netherlands in 2000. So there isn't a lot of data about its effect. And it may turn out to be a good thing. It may turn out to be uh, not to be a good thing, as the supporters of Proposition 8 apparently believe. But you want us to step in and render a decision based on an assessment of the effects of this institution, which is newer than cell phones or the Internet? I mean, we, we, are not, uh, we do not have the ability to see the future. It's amazing. He, he brings such a good point, right? Traditional marriage, the building block of society, how long has it been around for? Thousands of years. I love it. He says same-sex marriage is newer than the cell phone. Now, we're so used to, to cell phones, right? But some of us were kids without cell phones. I know, teenagers, can you imagine that? The horror. How did you survive? We did. We went outside to play sometimes. But, but think about that. But this is, this is the world that we are living in. Now it is so engrossed, it almost feels like it's always been this way. Or that's what they want the next generation to believe. God has defined and ordained marriage for human flourishing. And humanity cannot redefine marriage and retain the benefits and blessings that marriage brings, right? I want my cake and I want to eat it too. 
I want to redefine marriage and still have all of the blessings of marriage. It doesn't work. Most of you are familiar with another occasion in which humanity sought to, to overthrow the wisdom of God's created order, right? The first command that God gave uh, is what? Be fruitful and multiply. Back in, back in the 1960s, there was a, a big uh, movement uh, and fears that uh, the earth could not sustain a larger population. There was three and a half billion people uh, on, in the world and, and back in the, in the 60s. Uh, and I think just recently, like this year, we passed eight billion uh, and uh, out of fear of overpopulation, uh, China instituted their one-child-only policy. Uh, and that led to millions of baby girls being aborted or abandoned. Because they're saying, if we can only have one child, we want that child to be a boy. Well, uh, as time has, has passed, China is now solving an, uh, or facing an unsolvable crisis. Because there are millions of men who will not be married. And they're referred to as broken branches, like in the family tree. Uh, And it's not that these men don't want to be married. There are literally not enough women for them to marry. So there are millions of unmarried men. And China now has the unsolvable problem of underpopulation. What do you do uh, when, when when you've gone against the wisdom of God... And you've said, we, we just won't have kids. We won't have a, an upcoming generation. If you buck that wisdom and say, we know better, there's going to be consequences of that. And you don't necessarily know what those are. But they come. And, and while same-sex marriage is, is younger than the cell phone, the ramifications of overthrowing the wisdom of God are already being revealed in the sexual chaos of our culture. See, uh, did, did I mention that when President Biden... Uh, had his signing ceremony for the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, that he invited two drag queens to attend that ceremony very publicly. And drag queens who were well known for doing the drag queen story hours in public libraries around the country. That, that's the, the chaos that we're moving towards. But marriage is not merely being attacked because it carries God's intrinsic wisdom. There is more to the world's rejection of marriage. Now draw your attention to the game plan against marriage. The second game plan. Really, the game plan against marriage is to to attack it, to tear it down. Uh, Marriage has, uh, over the course of the last uh, really 200 years, this, this goes far back far more than just the, the 1960s. Uh, if you want to read a, a book about how we got here, there's a rec- book rec- I would recommend, A Strange New World by Carl Truman. Uh, if you want uh, copies of we I have some, some extra, just shoot me an email. But marriage over the last 200 years has come under attack, and it, it, easy to see, it has been vilified. The marriage has been vilified, uh, and, and both, both roles within marriage have been vilified, right? Uh, women have been attacked. If you're working in the home, taking care of kids, if you're raising up souls that will live for eternity, that's not valuable work. You should go out and be in the workplace, right? Because what you'll do in the workplace is more valuable than raising up those eternal souls. That, that's the lie that, that the world has proclaimed. Uh, additionally, the, the world has vilified uh, any type of male leadership, any type of male headship within the home. 
Even though uh, that's what is rooted in creation. Whenever Paul talks about the roles of men and women, what does he go back to? goes back to creation. So marriage has been vilified. Second wave feminism proclaimed marriage as a form of slavery against women. It's been vilified. It's been deconstructed. And the different aspects of marriage have been slowly chipped away very subtly over time. And most of us haven't even realized what was taking place. Uh, Birth control, separated sex from procreation. No-fault divorce, uh, back in the 1960s, separated marriage from lifelong commitment. We're committed to one another for right now. And, And either one of us can break off the commitment at any point in time, should we choose to do so. The wide acceptance of of cohabitation apart from marriage slowly eroded the institution. Marriage is also being reduced and redefined. Marriage has become merely just a lifestyle choice. It's not the fundamental building block of society that we need to to uphold uh, and uh, safeguard. It's just a lifestyle choice. Take it or leave it. And marriage has been reduced to pretty much, uh, as we read in the, the Respect for Marriage Act, any two people who who love each other. But ultimately, the goal is for marriage to be abolished. There's a Russian-American journalist named Masha Gessen, who's an LGBT activist. She was invited to speak at the U.S. State Department. Think about that. This was said at the U.S. Department of State. She revealed that the movement doesn't actually want marriage equality. What the movement actually seeks, according to Gessen, is the destruction of marriage and the lying and that lying is one of the tools they use to get there Gessen stated it's a no-brainer that we should have the right to marry but i also think equally that it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage should not exist and that causes my brain some trouble and part of why it causes me some trouble is because fighting for gay marriage generally involves lying about what we are going to do with marriage when we get there Because we lie that the institution of marriage is not going to change, and that's a lie. That the goal is to to tear it down. But why do they want marriage to be abolished? Why do they want it uh, to no longer even exist? Well, back back in the 1930s, there was a, a German Marxist philosopher and activist. His name is Wilhelm Reich, and he made a an amazing observation. He said that that the way cultures uh, sustain themselves and, and maintain order in society is through uh, their, their sexual ethics, what, what they allow and what they don't allow. And he says, namely, uh, or that, namely, that sexual codes serve the purpose of maintaining this particular form of society or social organization. So what you, what you allow or don't allow sexually what will serve to uphold and uh, support uh, the structure of your society. Uh, but listen to what he, as he observed this, he says, Reich believed that the sexual morality of his own day, 1930s Germany, uh, was intended to reinforce the structure and authority of the traditional family. And he understood the social function of the traditional family is to raise children who are instinctively obedient to a strong authoritarian father figure. Uh, and in Wilhelm Reich's eyes, a figure such as Hitler. Uh, so he's observing this and saying this uh, this sexual ethic is supporting this family structure, and that family structure is intended to su- support uh, obedience to uh, this human leader. And so here's a quote from Reich. His mor- morality's aim is to produce 
uh, acquiescent subjects who, despite distress and humiliation, are adjusted to the authoritarian order. Thus, the family is the authoritarian state in miniature to which the child must learn to adapt himself as a preparation for the general social adjustment required of him later. So what's amazing is Reich is an, is an unbeliever, but he's made a correct observation. Uh, and he is, uh, he's an atheist, and, he, and he's looked out into society, and he's understanding that, that the family is a miniature picture of a larger authoritative structure. But because he's an atheist, he doesn't look above the highest level of human government. He just looks and says, this family structure is intended to support this uh, society. And so the conclusion is, so we have to tear it down. Right? But, but he needs to look higher. And we have to look higher at what marriage is truly intended uh, to be a picture of. Uh, marriage is intended to be uh, a picture of God's supremacy and rule over his created order. It's a picture of Christ's lordship over all creation. To put it more truly, the family is a miniature picture, not of the authoritative state, but of God's reign over the cosmos. And that is why it's the number one target. That's why activists say it must be torn down. It's Psalm 2. It's the nations raging against what feels like the bonds of God. It's Romans 1, exchanging the glory of God uh, and God giving us over. That is what we see. Uh, There is a a larger picture within marriage and the family. But also, abolishing marriage is a power grab. A couple other authors from a a book, The, The Guide to Culture, say, When social institutions change, so does culture. And when certain institutions become less influential, others become more influential. What, what cultural institutions, as, as marriage has declined, what cultural institutions have, have grown in power? Yeah, really the, the state, government, uh, schools, media, social media. With, with the breakdown of the family, the advancing influence of the LGBT agenda, parents have fewer and fewer rights. If you uh, just hear about there, there's so much going on. I think there was a thousand people that came out to a, a school board meeting in Caldwell because there was some some funny business happening up there with uh, gender identity and what parents, what teachers would be able to withhold from parents about the kids. So the, the legalization uh, and, the, and the normalization of same-sex marriage, in essence, allows it to be taught across every school. Uh, in every classroom in, in the nation. Uh, and that's what they want, because then an entire generation has been indoctrinated. Again, th- this game plan that I talked about 35 years ago, as I went through public school, guess what I was swimming in and swimming through? All of this. We have to be aware. We've all been swimming in these waters, and now we kind of have to see uh, what has been taking place. I hope at this point you understand what God's game plan for marriage is, and that you understand that there is an active game plan uh, against marriage right now, but, but how should we respond? I, I wanted to get to this. Let me go over a little bit, but, but bear with me. I have a savings bank of minutes, right? Because uh, I, I end early, early occasionally. Okay. Um, if you look at that, that final game plan, game planning your response. 
planning for conversations with others. How do you, how do you get ready? Let's say in, in conversations with others, here's, here's the very first thing that you need to affirm over and over again. Affirm the intrinsic value of every single human being because they are created in God's image. And that, that right there, we need to understand, we need to take that to heart, and we need to commit to interacting with people who disagree with us in that same way. They have value because they're created in God's image. Regardless of their sins, regardless of lifestyle, we, tril- we still treat them with respect because they have value as an individual. Number two, we affirm our willingness to love our neighbor who is different. Now, love, oh, there's a loaded word. Love does not mean blind affirmation. And that's what they're demanding. Blindly affirm anything that I want to do. No, I cannot do that. I love you. You have value, but I'm not going to affirm this behavior that you are choosing to, uh, to live, to live out. Love means acting in the person's best interest. And love means that you are willing to speak the truth and express your concern for people, not just for policies. There are, there are a lot of people caught up in the lies of the world, and we need to have compassion upon them and for them. Number three, we need to affirm the reality of sin and life in a sin-cursed world. We need to affirm that we are all sinners. We, we are, but for the grace of God, so we would go in those same strains of sin. We are all sinners in need of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And that's the only option. As we saw a couple weeks back, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father apart from Him. Number four, we need to affirm the judgment of God upon all sin, including homosexuality. And so there's a balance here. We need to affirm God's judgment is upon all sin. We read 1 Corinthians 6, right? And homosexuality was in there, but there was a lot of other sins in there as well. And it says uh, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. We need to keep that in mind. We can't leave homosexual out, homosexuality out, but we also... Uh, must not uh, can't single it out as well as the only sin that God hates. God hates all sin. Number five, we need to affirm that hope is found in Christ. Well, what was the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians 6? And such were some of you. There is hope for change and transformation in the gospel and in Christ. Uh, when, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, uh, all things have passed away. The new has come. We need to affirm that hope in Christ, and we need to affirm the need for repentance and faith. Uh, and here's also a, a key distinction. Uh, what, what is a, a person who's struggling with uh, homosexuality, what, what do they need to repent of? They don't just need to repent of a certain uh, sexual activity or a certain sexual inclination. Their biggest need is to repent of unbelief and to look to Christ in faith. Right? There's no one particular sin that any uh, sinner needs to repent of except unbelief. That, that's their biggest need. I love uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who was, uh, has an amazing testimony and story. She was uh, uh, practicing and, and living in a, a lesbian lifestyle for years and years before coming to Christ. And she says, you cannot repent of sexual orientation since sexual orientation is an artificial category built on a faulty premise. Two other authors, uh, Joel Beek and Paul Smalley, 
say the Bible's call to repentance is not a call to repent from one sexual orientation to another. The call to repentance is a call to reject the lie that our sexual desires define us and to submit to the authority of God's word in order to learn who we are and what we must become. That's the, the biggest thing that the, the world is proclaiming is that you are the sum total of your feelings. And that's who you are. Not just what you feel, but it's who you are. And we have to say, no, we need to repent and, and reject that lie and say we are who God made us to be. We are uh, male and female created in his image. Uh, and if we are a believer, we are united with Christ. So that's our game planning for conversations with others. About planning our own heart response. And here's, here's something to really examine yourself. If you have, you've hated your neighbor. If you've spoken with anger, if you've, if you've slandered uh, those uh, in, the, in the LGBT community, I would encourage you that you need to, you may need to repent. You may need to do some soul searching. You may need to go have some conversations. And I would encourage you to, to be cautious even in the way that you converse around the, the dinner table. You need to affirm all of those things above, uh, even in your own household. I remember talking with, uh, at one point in, in my years of, of youth ministry, there was a, 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 a teenager who was struggling with some same-sex attraction, and she felt like she couldn't ever talk with her parents about it because of the way her parents spoke about that topic around the dinner table. It wasn't that affirmation of those things. And, and the young lady, you know, grew out of that, uh, and, uh, which is the normal thing that, that, that takes place. But I want to encourage us as families that we need, we need to grow in wisdom and having intentional conversations about what marriage is with our kids. Secondly, I would encourage you to prepare to stand for the truth regardless of the consequences. Regardless of, of lawsuits, regardless of vilification, regardless of being shunned and, and treated as an outcast, be willing to stand. And then third there, and probably most importantly, pray for strength. Pray for strength to stand. And the challenges that we face right now, these are not new to the church. Uh, and, uh, and speaking to the challenges and pressures uh, from the culture uh, is what the, the church and the Christians are called to do. What? Light shines brightest in the darkness. And we have more and more opportunities to shine in the darkness. I want to close with a, with a quote from Charles Spurgeon who was speaking to the challenges and pressures of his own time in the late uh, 19th century. He says this. He says, We have too many in our company who will go right if they are led aright and who are sure to swim in the right direction if the current is strong enough to carry them with it. And these are all very well when the wind blows from the right quarter, but they are of small use in ill weather. Now, at this hour, there is a call for men who can breast the torrent and swim upstream. We need heroes who would just as soon go alone, if necessary, as march with a thousand comrades. We need men who are doing their own thinking and do not put it out as families do with their washing. And they have thought out the truth and, have, and having gone to God about it and felt the power of it in their own souls, they are not now to be moved from the hope of their calling. They are pillars in the house of God, abiding in their places and not mere caterpillars, crawling after something to eat. We need captains for the good ship who know their longitude and latitude and can tell whence they came and to what port they are steering. 
Our commander needs warriors true as steel and for this hour of conflict. Amen? We need to be willing to stand. We prepare in our hearts now. We pray for strength. And then when the opportunity arises, we must seize it. As timid and as fearful as we may be in that time. We seize that opportunity. We stand courageously. Let's pray.